Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, let me add my welcome to, to Matt and uh, my thanks to Matt and to Lewis for playing too. My name's Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here. And it's great to gather together. And it's a really good thing to gather together this evening. Thank you for, for being here. Um, we're going to be thinking together about James chapter 1, uh, carrying on a series which was begun last week. And so if you could open your Bible to, to James chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, um, whether in physical format or electronic, and if not, uh, the words will appear on the screen behind me. We will be reading from verse 18 to verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Before we think about that together for a few minutes, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Our God and Father, our prayer this evening is quite simple and yet in many ways profound, that you would please enable us to be both hearers of the word and those who do it. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I wonder if you can remember a time in your life when you were caught in two minds. It's quite a, a common experience. I think it can happen over a fairly innocuous thing about the, the color scheme in the living room. Do you go for the avocado and brown striped wallpaper or for the, the, the red and blue polka dot wallpaper? If you're wondering, the answer is neither. Or, or in two minds over when to have dinner, not least on a night like a Sunday night. Have you ever had that one before? Do you have dinner before or after the evening service? Again, if you're wondering, the answer to that one is both if at all possible. Uh, being caught in, in two minds can be a f over a fairly innocuous thing that doesn't really matter one way or t'other. 
But it can be a much more serious thing. It can involve between choosing between two not morally neutral options, but between one good option and one bad one. Being caught in two minds over whether to pursue a damaging addiction on one hand or to seek help on the other. Being two minds about whether to remain faithful to your spouse on the one hand or pursue infidelity on the other. See, being caught in in, in two minds is something a lot of us face day by day. And whilst it can be a bit of a non-event, well, it can also be a very dangerous place to be indeed. And uh, the reason I begin with that this evening is that that second kind of double-mindedness, the potentially devastating kind is the kind of mindset which the book of James was at least in part written to help address, of being caught in two minds spiritually, between wholeheartedly following God on the one hand and serving ourselves and what makes life easiest for us on the other. Now, we began this new evening series in James last Sunday evening. Derek very helpfully set us off. And if you're familiar with the letter of James at all, it might be that you've always thought it to be a bit of a random hodgepodge of moral teaching. It's often called one of the practical letters in the Bible, which is why a lot of people quite like it, actually. And James does have a lot to say about how Christians should live, what we should do. There are some behaviors that come up again and again and again as you read through the letter. How Christians treat people who are less wealthy than them, chapter 2. How Christians speak and the kind of language they use, chapter 3. How Christians handle disputes between one another, chapter 4. As a friend of mine once put it, James seems to be writing to believers behaving badly. But if we treat James as though he is only concerned with outward behaviours... That this is like the Bible's how-to letter from a a self-help coach. Well, we effectively end up only treating various symptoms. James's aim is not only to treat symptoms, but to root out a disease. And we were given a clue about what the disease was last week in chapter 1, verse 8. Read that with me. For, for, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord... He is a double-minded, or literally double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. The mindset that's giving rise to believers behaving badly through the letter is at least in part double-mindedness. And that example of double-mindedness I gave you a few minutes ago of being in two minds about whether to remain faithful to your spouse or not, that might have sounded pretty shocking, like I was overstating the point, but actually... That's exactly the illustration James uses of how serious spiritual double-mindedness can be. Again, just look on with me towards the end of the letter, if you have a Bible open with you, in uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see those two minds, friendship with the world or friendship with God. 
See, spiritual double-mindedness is a real and present danger for the Christians to whom James was writing. And I think you'll see, at least from that quote in chapter 4, that the stakes could not be higher. He makes himself an enemy of God, says James. And I would suggest that that spiritual double-mindedness can be a danger to many of us too. I wonder if you've been here for any of our series in Mark's account of Jesus' life over the past six months or so as a church family, you might have felt a little bit of that yourself. I certainly have, and I've been teaching a fair chunk of it. As you feel on one hand the draw to take up a cross in order to follow Jesus, knowing that following him is the only reasonable thing to do with your life, even if it's costly. And on the other hand the draw to cling on to my money and my standard of living in the here and now. The draw to to, to relish a juicy piece of gossip we picked up about an acquaintance and to enjoy, to relish the wonderful feeling of sharing it with someone else. The attraction of taking that other Christian apart behind their back, piece by piece by piece. See, spiritual double-mindedness is alive and well. And James's intention is to show us what it looks like, to shine a great big spotlight on it, as it appears in each one of us. And not only to highlight the disease, but to prescribe the cure, that we would be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. And so in that sense, I hope that James will actually be a really helpful follow-on to our series in Mark's account of Jesus' life. See, in Mark, Jesus called people to follow him wholeheartedly. Well, James will help us to see where we might not be doing that and how to address it where that's the case. And we see one key way by which we are to do that in our passage this evening. We'll think about that under our first heading. First slide, please. There we go. Super. Thank you. Continue to humbly receive the word which saved you. Now, some of you will know that uh, that we, my wife and I, have recently welcomed a new addition into our family. Baby Karis was born um, just over five weeks ago, which should go some way towards explaining the bags under my eyes and the glazed expression uh, on my face, or perhaps slightly more glazed than normal. And and we've been through the same thing twice before. We've got two little boys. Um, But one of the new things we've had to wrestle with since since Karis arrived are the questions from our doting big brothers. Uh, Why isn't she looking at me yet, Dad? Do you think she likes it when I I cuddle her? Mum, what about if I I held her upside down? Does she want to try some of my Easter egg? That that kind of thing. Uh, Some of the, the slightly trickier questions we've had to deal with, though, have been about Karis's birth itself. Why will mummy go into hospital for Karis to be born? Will it be sore? Any suggestions on how to answer those questions for a five and three-year-old gratefully received? Thank you. Because explaining the birthing process can be fairly ropey territory, at least with small children. But in James 1, James has no such problem explaining a birthing process to his readers. James chapter 1 verse 18. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That phrase translated as brought us forth is an in labor with a baby kind of phrase. James is talking about a birth. 
a spiritual birth. He's talking about people becoming Christians, or as Jesus puts it in John's account, of being born again. And in James, we're told two surprising things, perhaps, about that new birth. Firstly, James tells us about how significant a newly born Christian is. People were born, verse 18, to be a first fruit of God's creatures. What's a, a first fruit? Well, it's literally a fruit or it's produce, the, the, the first of the fruits in any given harvest. And James is saying that in God's grand plan for the entire cosmos to, to renew all things, to remake this broken world into something new, that Christians, people who've been born again, are first fruits. They are the forerunners, the first in that harvest. Isn't that a bit of a surprise? It isn't what I often feel like as a Christian, a first fruit. I often feel a bit more like one of those wonky fruits that the supermarkets try and sell off at a reduced price because it doesn't look like it should. But James says, if you're a Christian, see yourself rightly. You are a first fruit of God's eternal plan for the cosmos. It's the first surprising thing. And the second surprising thing isn't about the significance of those spiritual babies. Well, it's about how they came to be, how spiritual babies are born, if you like. They came to be, says James, by the word of truth. And we thought about this last Sunday morning in First John, if you were here, that the Bible, God's word, well, it isn't a book quite like any other. I mean, in one sense, it is, of course, it's got pages and, and, and words and you can read it. But in another sense, it's unlike anything in the world. It is the word which God uses to convince people of their need for him. To convince them, to convince us of our rejection of him. Convince us of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And from what James tells us, there is a supernaturality to that word as it gets to work in people. Brought forth by the word of truth. Now, uh, one reason people often seem to get into a bit of a fankle when it comes to the letter of James is the idea that it contradicts the teaching of the rest of the Bible. You might have heard that kind of idea before Derek mentioned it last week, if you were here. The good news that Paul tells us about, or that the rest of the Bible seems to tell us about, is all about God's free offer of grace in Jesus. But James seems to want to make our faith all about what we do for God. It's the practical letter. And so which one is right, we might ask. But I wonder if you can see how that's kind of setting up a bit of a false dichotomy. Because James and Paul aren't talking about two different kinds of Christianity at all. Paul's quite clear for his part in what he tells us, that, that having faith in Jesus will change people, will, will help us to live differently, enable us, make us into new people. And conversely, can you see how James 1 and all of the, the practical teaching that's going to come over the next few chapters is rooted not in what we do for God, but in what God has done in us. By God's own will, he has chosen to bring people to life, to bring about what we might otherwise call spiritual rebirth by his word. 
How are spiritual babies born, we might ask, like a toddler trying to make sense of their newly arrived sibling? Well, God does it, comes the answer. Not us, we don't conjure it up. God does it by his words of truth. And it's only having established that fact, the fact of what God has done in rescuing people to himself by his word, that he then starts telling people how to live in light of that. And the relationship between what God has done and how people are to respond, well, it's hand in glove. Just uh, notice that with me. Verse 21 of James chapter 1. Receive, says James, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When do you see the connection there between verse 18 and verse 21? You were reborn, says James, by the word, the word of truth. Now, says James, humbly receive that word. Continue to listen to what God says. And I say humbly, both because James says that we are to do that, to receive the implanted word with meekness, which is another word for for being humble or showing humility, but also because of what comes between verse 18 and verse 21, which funnily enough is verses 19 and 20. Just read those with me. Know this, my beloved brothers, says James. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, you might have heard those verses before. Verse 19 is possibly one of the most famous verses in the whole of James. And it's often understood to mean that in our relationships with other people, we ought to be good listeners. It's the Bible's version of that old proverb that I've got two ears and one mouth, so I should listen twice as much as I speak. But just notice where it comes in James. It comes between verse 18, a word about the transformative word of truth, and verse 21. A verse about receiving that word. And it's all, notice, about listening. Not being angry, not being quick to speak, but listening. All of which means that verses 19 and 20, whilst helpful in a general sense about how we listen, they are particularly helpful in sharpening how it is we are to listen to God. And the question I think all of that would leave us with is if we are people who've been born again, if that word has taken root in us, whether we do listen to God's word like that, whether we receive it humbly. And to help us with that, let me ask you, when was the last time that you heard something in the Bible, either in your own reading of it or in a talk, that disagreed with you, that ran against the grain of what you'd thought before? See, it's it's often quite easy to keep the word out there, isn't it? To hear it, but not really listen to it. Even on a Sunday, it's easy to come away from a talk on 1 John this morning or on James this evening and for our minds to be more focused on, on how addled the preacher looked, whether he was interesting or engaging, than on what the Bible actually says. Now, let me be clear that we are right to waive what is said on Sundays from the pulpit. It's vital we do that. That's exactly why every time I speak, I want us looking at the Bible text as the preacher preaches, making sure he is saying what the Bible is saying. 
But if you only ever weigh and never listen, I think James would have you start to listen. See, a key mark of of single-mindedness, of wholeheartedness as Christians is that we continue to humbly receive that word which saved us. But I've tried to deconstruct James's reputation as, as being anti-Paul. I don't think it's fair at all. But it is true to say that James has some fairly direct things to say to us, helpfully direct, disarmingly direct, at times, because what will save people is faith alone in Jesus alone. But the kind of faith that saves people is never alone. Let's think about that next. Don't just listen to that saving word, but do what it says. Now, some of you might have had that experience of needing to get dressed or to get ready in the morning in the pitch black, perhaps so as not to wake someone else who's gently slumbering in the room. And it's quite possible in that scenario to find yourself halfway through the day before realizing that you're wearing odd socks or that the shirt you're wearing looks like it's never seen an iron before. A friend of mine once got to lunchtime, actually, before realizing that he was wearing odd shoes, which is quite the achievement. Well, James envisages a scenario where someone has the luxury of having the light on as they get ready in the morning. And he asks us to imagine that person looking in the mirror, seeing what they look like, clear as day, seeing what needs fixing, the stubble that needs to be shaved, the hair that needs to be combed, seeing all of those issues, clear as day, and doing nothing about them, leaving the house for the day. Notice that with me, chapter 1, verse 23 If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, it's it's quite a funny idea, I think. I think it's meant to be. But what's a, a funny scenario is meant to highlight a, well, quite a serious reality. What if we were to read the Bible and it were to hold up a a metaphorical mirror to us and to our lives to show a part of our life that's in need of attention? I mean, we would give that issue, that that, that problem, due care and attention, wouldn't we? Or would we? Think back to the question I asked a moment or two ago about the last time the Bible disagreed with you about something. Take that question one step further. When was the last time that the Bible disagreed with you about something and you knew it did and rather than ignoring it like a a disheveled man looking in a mirror and leaving his hair in a mess, you made a change? When was the last time you felt convicted of the need to change and you actually made the change? Now that might not just be a change in your behavior, perhaps a change in how you think of God or of yourself or of other people. See, for the double-minded person, it seems, there is a disconnect. A disconnect between hearing and doing. But not so with the single-minded Christian, with the whole-hearted Christian. They hear what God says and respond as God would have us respond. 
Now, if you can't think of any examples of that kind of thing happening to you off the top of your head, well, in our closing verses for this evening, James gives us some help. Some of you might know that I grew up in a a place called Ayr in the southwest of Scotland, and uh, it might tell you a little bit about the kind of place it was to grow up, that when I was in primary school, uh, the police visited some of the local schools and handed out pens, uh, which were filled with invisible ink. Uh, They were to be used to write our details on the side of our bikes, so that if, or I guess when, they were nicked, uh, the police could identify them. Uh, But the the, the problem with invisible ink, of course, is uh, that it's invisible. And after you've written something, you can't see what it says. So how do you see something written in invisible ink? Well, you shine a light onto it, an ultraviolet light. And as soon as you do that, whatever you've written, though it was invisible in normal daylight, lights up like a Christmas tree. James has so far given us some fairly clear instructions. Listen to the word that was implanted within you. Do the word. And yet it can sometimes be tricky to identify whether we really are doing that or not. Whether we're listening as we ought, whether we're doing as we ought. And so in verses 26 and 27, James, well, he gets his UV light out. Tells us about three key areas of our lives which might reveal whether we are single-minded in our pursuit of Jesus or not. Now, these ideas are just trailed here, and this isn't an exhaustive list. Each will be explored more fully later on in the letter, but we will introduce them now in the time that we have left. The UV light test is our third point this evening. Your single-mindedness will be evident from, firstly, your tongue. I'm really sorry I said that. I didn't really mean it. That wasn't me talking. I I, I don't even know where it came from. Ever said that kind of thing before? I know I have. And of course, sometimes we do say things that, 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 that don't reflect the way we truly feel. But on the whole, the way we speak is a very helpful indicator of what's going on inside. Jesus says as much, doesn't he? He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And James very helpfully draws out the implication of that. Notice that in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice there the link between the tongue and the heart. There is a disconnect in the double-minded Christian between the tongue and the heart. And the heart. Have a think on the kinds of conversations you have each day. Is your tongue bridled, under control? Or are you the sort of person who shoots first and aims later? James says that the tongue is very often a good indicator of how many minds you might have as a Christian. One or two, whether you're devoted to Jesus or devoted to Jesus and kind of also devoted to yourself. That isn't the only indicator, though. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Your single-mindedness, says James, will be evident from your care. I have a friend who's very passionate about social justice. He is a Christian, a very clear Christian, sees it as his duty to serve the poor 
and marginalized and outcast, which is a really wonderful thing, a very challenging thing. And he takes a lot of his inspiration for that passion from this verse in James. And for a while at least, though, he got to arguing that, that, that looking after people less fortunate than you, well, it's pretty much the only thing that matters if you're a Christian. And you can kind of see where he gets that from, because what James says sounds fairly categorical, doesn't it? That, that says James, is the kind of religion, verse 27, that is pure, undefiled before God. But it is important to bear in mind that it's, it's possible to serve people in need, to be a doer of verse 27, but to have a tongue like a wild horse, full of gossip and speaking ill of people, and so to fail to do verse 26. And the reason for me mentioning that is, is to make sure we don't treat the letter of James as, as a sweet shop of ideas from which we choose the ones we like and we ignore the ones we don't. Again, remember for James, what matters is to root out the disease. And one of the symptoms of the disease, and it's right to see it in that way, one of the symptoms of the disease of double-mindedness is how we treat other people. And more particularly, how we treat other Christians who are in need. It's one of James's, well, his tests, part of the UV light test. See, in days before any welfare state before a particularly developed fostering system, orphans and widows were vulnerable, vulnerable members of society. And what you think of them, says James, how you treat them as a Christian, well, it's a sign of whether you've really listened to God, whether you're wholehearted in your commitment to him. Lastly, there is one slightly more general, but nonetheless important marker. Your single-mindedness, says James, will be evident from your purity. Verse 27, notice that with me. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now again, it is possible, in fact, quite common to misread this verse. It's been used by quite a number of Christian groups over the years to, to justify their removal of themselves from the world, to, to, to forming a bit of a holy huddle, separating themselves in order not to be defiled from the world. And that is not what James is advocating for, I think. But as a Christian, well, it is important to be mindful that the culture we live in, it will rub off on us very often. And that goes from the content we consume online all the way through to the conversations we have with colleagues or friends. Not because all content online or all conversations are bad, but each can form us, can shape us, can influence us in ways we don't even notice. An influential Bible teacher from the 20th century used to therefore speak about being in the world, but not of the world. Because being wholehearted and following Jesus, well, at the very least, it involves being mindful that as we live in the world, it is quite possible to become of it. And James, at the very least, would have us guard against that, be mindful it's a possibility. Now, as we close, let me try and draw some of those threads together. Firstly, if you are here this evening and wouldn't describe yourself as being a Christian... And uh, you think that a church like this one is, is a club of nice people who get together to encourage each other to be nicer each week. 
Well, I hope you've been able to see from, from what you've been thinking about together that that isn't what we're about at all. Encouraging each other to be nicer each week, well, it might start to address some of the symptoms of our problem, but our problem is far, far deeper than that. James says that before we were Christians, well, we were spiritually dead, actually. That's the inference of, of what he says. And so trying to change our behavior in and of itself, it's not going to get us very far. But the wonderful good news of Jesus is that God himself intervenes, takes people by his word of truth from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. And all any of us brought to the table was a recognition of our sin, our daily rejection of God, was a contrite heart and a faith that Jesus died, as we remembered a few minutes ago, to take punishment that we were due for that rejection. And so please do think on that this evening, on that offer of new life, of eternal life. It is open to you. If you'd like to to chat about that, please do grab me after the service. I'd love to speak with you or to to pray with you about any of that or any questions you might have. And if you are a Christian here this evening, there are lots of specific takeaway points from this passage, as there will be from much of James. But I'm going to leave you with two. The first of which is that the Christian life is something that has been done for us, first and foremost. It's an act of rebirth, not something we've conjured up ourselves. And so the first outbox, I guess, of James chapter 1 is to give thanks to God that he's done that for you. That is who you really are if you're a Christian, a first fruit of what God is planning on doing in the entire cosmos. That's an extraordinary thing. And secondly, because point number one is true, because God has remade people by his word of truth, we'll continue to listen to and to do that word single-mindedly in your speech, in how you treat people, in your thought life even, in every area of your life. Be hearers of the word and be doers of the word. And in that way, be single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. Let's ask for his help. We need it to do that now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for this whole letter, the letter of James. And we thank you for the passage we've been reflecting on over the past few minutes, for the wonderful reminder of the work that you have done by your word of truth within your people, within some of us, that by believing in those words and what they tell us of you, we can know new life and be your first fruit. And our God and Father, we do pray that you would please simply help us to listen to that same word carefully, humbly receiving it day by day. And not only that, but to do it, to live it out in our lives day by day. And where there is a disconnect between those two things, between hearing and doing, would you please do away with it?
by your Holy Spirit. Help us to be not hearers only, but to be doers of the word. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.